Hi there, and welcome to the Center for Independent Studies. I'm Glenn Fay, Research Fellow here at the CIS. Improving the lives of young Australians through education has been integral to our mission, and we're living through especially challenging times for schooling, none more so than those in Victoria right now. While students across most of the country have been back to face-to-face -face classes, COVID really has thrown a curveball at education systems all over the world. Recent research published by CIS shows that the temporary closure of schools bears an educational penalty for disadvantaged students, and that places additional pressure on schools to remedy lost learning. Ahead, we host some of Australia's leading voices in education, Professor Parsi Salberg, Greg Ashman, and Jordan Baker. Parsi is Deputy Director of the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales. Greg is Head of Mathematics and Head of Research at Ballarat Clarendon College and Jordan is Education Editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. While COVID-19 poses many challenges, it also presents opportunities to rethink our schooling priorities like never before. And that leads us to consider, do schools need a transformation? So without further ado, it's over to you, Jordan. Thank you very much, Glenn. And lovely to see you both, Parsi and Greg. As Glenn said, Australian educators have faced huge challenges this year. Parsi, what do you think we've learned about teaching and learning through this experience and how do you think it could change our practice in the post-COVID era? Well, uh, thank you, first of all, for having me in this, uh, this conversation or, or debate. And, um, um, I, you know, I agree that this is one of, those, one of those questions that everybody's thinking about. The fact actually is that we don't know really how all this is going to play out. Just think about couple of months passed uh, behind and, and we had no idea that we are going to be in this situation. Unfortunately, Victoria, again, is, uh, is going through this difficult time. Uh, we, can, we, we don't know actually how long this, this is going to last. But I think one thing um, we have learned probably globally, I'm not only talking about Australia here, what I see, um, that it, it, it is that, you know, it, it was surprisingly smooth and quick shift that the school systems made in March. We had 1.7 billion children uh, not in school and many of them, not all of them, but many of them studying from using different types of uh, arrangements. People often say that schools change very uh, very slowly, but you know, this is a kind of a sign that uh, if, if, if sc when schools have to change that they're able to do these things. Of course, the, the thing is that we, uh, the other thing we don't know is that how, how well ac actually this uh, transition happened. Of course, there are, there are a lot of children who, we're not doing that well, but they are also, uh, according to some early early studies and and, and research uh, and evidence is coming in different countries, is that there are actually surprisingly many children who were probably doing better without going to school. So we don't we don't really know how, overall, you know, how this thing is gonna uh, play out. And your question about what what do we learn from this is is something that we, uh, probably this conversation will be part of that kind of a. Uh, creating this type of understanding, but I think I think it's too early to say yet what uh, what will be the, the kind of a key lessons and and things that we take away from this. We are just in the middle of this whole thing right now. So, Greg, what do you think? Are there any things that you think we've learned already? Um, I would uh, say that. Um, I'd agree definitely with Parsi that uh, it's very, very early days. We don't really know exactly what is going to come out of this yet. Um, it, it's impossible to tell. We don't even know how long this crisis is going to last. I didn't think that my school would be going back into um, a lockdown situation, a remote learning situation, but here we are. 
Um, what it's brought home to me is what an incredibly advanced technology the regular traditional classroom is. Um, if um, I'm, I want to see how my students are responding to a task um, in a regular classroom, I can just walk around the classroom and have a look. Um, when we're doing remote learning, I have to, there's a variety of tools I can use to try and figure out how things are going, but none of them are as efficient as just being able to walk around the classroom. So it, it's brought that home to us, but uh, Parsi's right. We've, we've all had to adapt very quickly to this new situation. Uh, with the uh, tools that we have available. And in, in fact, like uh, my school, we've been using Microsoft Teams and the Microsoft Teams from the start of uh, the crisis is a different Microsoft Teams to now. So the tech companies have adapted really quickly as well. And there are some tools that we will use, like you, we, we, you can now, uh, we're, we're aware that you can record a lesson. And so if someone's absent, um, you can, um, they can watch the lesson later and things like that. So it might sound a little bit mundane, but those can make a big difference uh, overall. There's also quite a lot of assessment tools and different ways of doing things that you can use with this technology. And again, well, I, how useful they will be in the long term, we, we, we are yet to see. One of the things that some schools are telling me is that their students, um, Greg, and I'd be interested in if yours have had this experience, I really, a lot of them, senior students, are really enjoying the independence of the remote learning. One Sydney school's actually given students every second Monday off now because the feedback from the senior students was so strong. Do you think this could be featured more in timetabling and that sort of thing, the, the giving students a little bit more independence about how they manage their time? It's definitely a possibility. Um, my experience wouldn't be that, that there has been a class of students who've particularly thrived because of this, but I teach year 12 students, many of whom are missing out on 18th birthdays and all the social events that go with you being in year 12. And so um, it's difficult to tell. Um, what we do know about self-directed learning is that it tends to be better for the students who go into that situation with the most resources already, um, the students who um, have uh, know the most basically and are, are the most advanced in their learning. So for those students, um, it, it is possible. And the other thing you could do, of course, is you can, you can um, improvise around the school day, courses that maybe uh, you wouldn't have enough um, students to run uh, within one school. You could teach remotely across a number of schools. So there's quite a lot of possibilities there. But um, I certainly wouldn't I couldn't identify a large group of students for whom this has been particularly beneficial. Parsi, will you be watching on the BCE process this year with interest? Uh, because the Victorian government's obviously having to take a very different approach to the BCE this year with so much uncertainty. Do you think this could perhaps um, suggest different approaches to the school leaving qualification that we've seen in the past and could potentially be something that could be built into the system or, or looking at different options? Uh, you mean in in Victoria? Or? In Victoria, yeah. You know, I, I don't know, probably Craig can say more, more about that. But I, I think, you know, assessment and examinations thing is certainly one big theme that will come out globally out of this crisis. And not only how, how students in schools are, are assessed and, and examined, uh, but, you, you know, if you look at the North America, uh, the United States universities, what's happening there with the SATs. And I think we're going to see a huge kind of a reform and, and revolution, actually, in, in terms of how we have used to think about uh, entrance examinations and, and testing and assessing our students 
um, you know, particularly in these transition phases when they leave high school and go to university or, or things like this. But you know, I don't, I don't have enough uh, information about the Victoria itself. But you know, my, my kind of a guess is that among some other things that the the assessment and examination question will be one of the big ones people will be asking that what what type of things we really need and and um, should have in place in the future greg what are your views on, on what's happening with the vca marking this year um well i well we just <laughs> we don't exactly know <laughs> what's happening this year um we've we've had some hints um from uh, our state uh, education minister and we've got some ideas about what that what might look like and I'm sure that everyone is going to make the best of um, quite a difficult situation and or everyone in every school is going to uh, do their utmost to make sure the kids are fairly um, um, assessed. Uh, what I would say is that it's probably the biggest free hit uh, going if you if you pitch an op-ed saying um, oh, you know, let's get, let's abolish the VCE, let's abolish the AS, HSC, let's abolish NAPLAN. Um, we'll put NAPLAN to one side for a minute. I think uh, you, you'll get a lot of people who will nod along quite um, enthusiastically with that. Uh, people say, well, these uh, assessments, well, they're very stressful uh, for students and we, we need to alleviate that stress. We need to bring in learning portfolios, uh, long-term uh, ways where we can assess whether students uh, that have uh, done project work maybe or they their extracurricular activities or in their, their involvement in the community what i would say is i think we need to be a little bit cautious that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, exams were I, I think invented by the ancient chinese um, as a means for getting rid of patronage um, on entry to the civil service because they were a more objective means and they still have some value if you um if you use, say, a learner portfolio, which is being suggested by a number of people, um, and you're thinking, well, we're going to do project work, we're going to do look at extracurricular activities, we're going to look at community service, compare the kid from a single parent family who gets two buses to school who works at weekends, um, and with the kid from, you know, the North Shore kid with connections in the local church, the North Shore kid is going to find it much easier to show evidence of community service and extracurricular activities and things like that than um, the, 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 the kid from the single parent family. But what an exam does, although, yes, you can get tuition and things like that, um, an exam system means that ultimately students have to go into the exam hall and perform on their own. Um, and so there is an element of making it fairer. So if we're going to replace an exam basis, and particularly for these high state things like entry to university, uh, it, we can't just criticise the, the failings of the system as it stands. We have to make sure that what we're proposing as an alternative is better. And just a final thing on stress. Life's got a lot of stresses. You know, asking someone out on a date, um, going, uh, you know, getting the medical um, diagnosis you don't want. I was quite um, anxious before this um, discussion tonight. And so I don't think we should necessarily remove all um, pressures and stresses from school-aged students. I think a little bit of that is a good thing. So, Pazzi, what's your response to that? Would you agree that a bit of stress is a good thing and that exams are a good way to expose kids to that? Yeah, of course, you know, of course, the good exams and good assessments and tests are always good. Um, um, in favor of those things like like for example i don't know how much you 
you know about the, the Finland's uh, examination system, and I understand this conversation is not so much about the Finnish education there, but you know how, how the students are there tested in the end of high school. Um, I, I used to be a math and science teacher for many years in the system, and I, I'm a big fan of that type of uh, examination. It's a hugely high stake thing for kids, uh, but just like uh, like Craig said, it's a, it's putting like basically all the all the kids in um, not in the same situation, but it gives everybody a kind of a fair opportunity to do something and it's, it's a very highly highly supported uh, thing in, in among the teaching profession and parents and in, including students uh, so you, you know it really depends on what what type of uh, assessments and examinations we are talking about but there's nothing nothing worse than bad tests and ex exams that are used for for wrong wrong purposes like many countries are, are doing right now. And I think, you know, Greg said that we, let's put the NAPLAN aside, but we probably get back to that issue a little bit later. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not one of those who is saying that we should stop doing NAPLAN here. I, I'm, I'm saying that we need, we need to have an alternative system that is better and fits, uh, fits in that kind of a different, different purposes than the current one. And it's, it's not only NAPLAN, it's, it's the same thing in many other countries that are finding themselves in a situation where the old ways of kind of a deciding what the kids know and, and you know, how well they're doing in the school and are they ready for whatever it's a work or life or, or, or study, that those things are not necessarily any more relevant for, for doing something like this. So um, just like you said, Craig, I think we need to think about, you, you know, how, how do we do these things that we used to do in old, old ways in the past so that, that we can really get the best out of, um, out of these kids and, and young people who are in our system right now. Just on, uh, specifically on, on HSC, BCE, following on to ATAR, PASI, do you think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who argue that the ATAR is a bad way to summarise 13 years of schooling, but then there's other people who say, look, it is the best, fairest way we have. Do you think there's a better way? I mean, there's a lot of people talking about learner profiles, for example. Do you think sort of highlighting that jagged profile that students get at the end of school is a better way of doing it? No, I think there, there probably is a better way to do that. I don't know exactly what it would be here, but I do know that's my, my view is that by kind of a, uh, uh, squeezing everything like 13 years of schooling into one number uh, doesn't sound to me like a good, like a best, best idea that you can have in a times like this when, when the, the, you know, the knowledge and competence is a kind of a, good education is so much more than just one number. So, so the, you know, this is my response that I don't know exactly what the, what the alternative to um, this, the system that is based on ATAR here would be. But I do, I do know that it's, a, it's, it's a probably not, not something that we should be doing. I don't know any other country, uh, honestly, around the world that would do the same thing, that the school would end in one one number and that would then decide whether, you know, how successful or poor you were in the school. So there, 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 there must be a better, a different way to do that in the future. Greg, just on assessment now that we're here, some people have argued that there is a cultural opposition to assessment in Australia. Um, do you, would you agree with that, given the fact that you've also worked overseas? I think it's everywhere. I think um, uh, there is there, there is a there's a, a philosophy amongst um, a, a large section of the education community that's very ro 
romantic um, and it, uh, it it sets itself in opposition to things that it sees as um, mechanistic like tests and things like that um, so I, I think in most countries in the UK uh, I said it's a free hit pitching an op-ed against um, the VCE here I think you'd find similar uh, in the UK and the US I think Pans is absolutely right that we have to we have to think about the, the function of assessment. We have to think what we're trying to do with it. And I don't actually think it's right, um, quite right, that, the, that, ev that the, uh, everything is reduced to one number at the moment because um, there are various different other factors that universities can take into account other than the ATAR. Um, but I would say that, you know, if you look at, say, the UK, um, people, they have a system where they do exams and the universities look at the individual grades in the different exams. And I think one of the things that we lack here uh, is you, you can do things like you can do engineering degrees without necessarily studying physics uh, at year 12 because you, you're going for the, the ATAR. So we could think a little bit more about that and make sure it was a little bit more fit for purpose. Um, I, I think there's a difference between that and the point that you're getting at, which is more of a philosophical um, disagreement with any kind of examination system, which I do think exists. It is out there, but I don't think it's unique to Australia. Now, just on assessment while we're here, NAPLAN, everyone's favourite topic. Um, Parsi, both federal parties are not interested in getting rid of NAPLAN. So assuming that it is here to stay, what would you suggest doing to improve it? My proposal is based on the what the Konsky Institute, we at the Konsky Institute submitted as our, our kind of a idea about a year ago for the when when there was a review and and it's a it's a basically it's not based on the idea that we should scrap NAPLAN altogether because you know I I don't think that you know most most things in education don't work like uh, just you know try to abolish thing and and then you have nothing to no, nothing to offer to replace it but I, I think that we would have an we, we would have an opportunity now particularly now after the this all this mess caused by this pandemic and school closures and many other things will provide a kind of a new platform to talk about these things to to really think about the NAPLAN 2.0 whatever it's called that would be would be more based on two things one one is that it would lower the stakes uh, that it has now for many schools and and parents and even kids and others by you know redesigning it to be a kind of a sample based assessment just like they do in the in the United States is a is a good way to monitor the performance of the system um, in in uh, that way and uh, now I forgot what the other one did, did I say two things you said two things yes you know this this kind of kind of a, a sample based format would be a kind of an alternative to um uh, to do that in, in uh, you know after this uh, thing is over the the criticism of sample testing though is that for some small population groups indigenous students for example it just would not give a real indication of where they're at. And one thing that NAPLAN has done, or many people argue, is we know there's a gap, now we know how big it is through NAPLAN. So how would you make sure that you captured those uh, small population groups, those those groups of kids that are really important to know where they're at? Yeah, now, now I remember the second thing. It's been a long long day, so I'm, uh, my memory is is, uh, is not working. You know, I think when I, when I came here about two years ago, one, one thing that I was uh, kind of surprised 
to see um, when visiting number of uh, schools in all states and territories here in Australia is that how weak a little teachers actually have a role to um, this in the end of the day to decide what the kids are learning um, that in, in many many schools that I visited the uh, the thinking is that you know somebody else will basically do the kind of a judgment how successful we are and I think that the teachers that I have met that's my experience here are fairly well prepared and and educated and willing also to uh, have a bigger role in, you know, answering exactly these questions that you were asking, uh, Jordan, about, you know, how kids are doing. But, you know, many, many systems, similar systems that are based on national assessment systems that are based on sampling. Uh, you know, sampling doesn't mean that you just take a kind of a random sample of of kids and then you use that data. You can, you know, you can, you can oversample uh, in some cases, like, for example, the, 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 um, the Finnish system where all, all the student assessment is based on sampling. Um, when we, about 20 years ago, when we started to have a kind of a masses of, of uh, immigrant children in the country who didn't speak Finnish or, or Swedish, of course, the question was that how they are doing in the, within the system. And the sample-based systems can kind of oversample those um, uh, those parts of the population if we really want to understand, you know, how they are doing here. And I think that that's it can can be used as a kind of excuse against the sample based testing but there are there are different ways to um you know fill those information gaps if if you if we are really interested in knowing some particular kids or some particular areas or uh, or some issues that we want to include but just you know including more um more students into these assessments the other thing is that you know if whenever you have a sample-based assessment system, you still, still have to kind of design the, the tests and test items and many other things in the same way as if you do a census-based thing. And then you can then you can use, you know, you, you, you can make those tests available for, um, for uh, districts or schools or communities who want to do that and just see, you know, how these things are, um, are working. So I think that there are solutions, you know, how to go about this gaps that you quite correctly um, uh, mentioned that often comes with the sample-based assessment by thinking a little bit kind of more creatively about how to use those things. So Greg, what would you think about uh, turning NAPLAN into a sample-based test? Um, just before I, I answer that, could I just clarify with my earlier comments? Someone has uh, put in the chat that exams have never leveled the playing field. I'm not, I've not, I'm not claiming that exams level the playing field. They most certainly do not. Advantaged kids go into a, an, uh, an exam with an advantage. My point is that they're better than the alternatives because the kids still have to do some of, they have to go into the exam room and do it on their own. So you've got to think up an alternative that is better. And that was my point. Sorry, on um, sample-based um, uh, NAPLAN. I think there are lots of ways to improve NAPLAN. I'm not sure using a sample system is one of them. I think one of the things that we've lost track of is there's a kind of moral case uh, for um, NAPLAN in the sense that it gives parents an insight into how their, their children are going in some really key areas like literacy and numeracy. I certainly as a parent wouldn't be happy if um, the, the it was changed to a sample system and now I no longer got that information on my uh, my children and I think we we shouldn't forget about parents um, in whatever we put forward as a replacement system because th them getting the appropriate information is important too now you could argue whether NAPLAN is best suited to doing that that's a different discussion um, the way I would improve um, NAPLAN is 
Um, for a start, the, uh, a couple of years ago, they reduced the, the number of um, maths questions that student ha students had to answer without a calculator. I think that sends a very bad signal because knowledge of maths facts is absolutely essential to maths performance. And the other thing, at the moment, the reading and writing assessments are basically set in completely random contexts. And this um, advantages those kids who've got a lot of resources, whose parents take them to museums, who, who talk to them um, about current affairs and things at the dinner table. What we should be basing the reading and writing assessments in is in the uh, content of the uh, Australian curriculum, because then two things would happen. You, you would not completely level the playing field. Let me, let me make this clear. But you would, you would reduce the advantage that um, those kids with more resources have because the teachers could teach that uh, curriculum content. Um, and you would also ensure that that curriculum content was taught and that schools didn't do things like endlessly practice NAPLAN papers. While we're on assessment, PISA, PASI, how indicative is PISA of the state of Australia's education system, do you think? I, 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 I don't know. You know, it's, it's, um, PISA has been around now for, for 20 years. And it's, um, you know, PISA is a good, sample, a good example of the, the, what we know as uh, Campbell's Law. Uh, Donald Campbell presented it in 1975 that basically says that the, the, the more any social indicator is used for high-stake purposes, the more likely it is that it will get somehow misused or Campbell uses the term corrupted. And I think that this, this is what is what we're going to, what we're seeing now with the, um, uh, with the PISA and we are seeing it with the NAPLAN and, you know, all these, all these uh, social indicators that behave in the same way somehow follow this, uh, this rule. You know, the kind of interesting thing in, in the latest 2018 PISA here in Australia was that three quarters almost 80% of Australian 15-year-olds who took, were selected to take part in PISA say that they didn't put their best effort to do the test. So if, the, you know, if, if this is true, if these kids are serious, that they are, you know, most of the kids are sitting, taking this test and saying that I'm not taking it seriously, how much can we conclude out of that? And it's the same thing. If you look at this, this same indicator throughout the PISA, it's a, it's a fairly high, high rate in almost all the other countries except the Asian uh, nations where the, the, you know, the testing is serving a different thing. So, so you know, I, I probably don't need to take any, any, any other aspects of this, you know, where we have cut with, uh, with the PISA right now than, you, you know, what the, what the kids are doing. Another thing, I've, I've been an advisor to, um, to a number of people, um, uh, politicians and, and, and um, administrators in Iceland. And, you know, Iceland is an interesting thing that if you, I don't know if you have been in Iceland, but if you, if you go to Iceland and go to see the schools, you, you would think that, you know, there's no better place than this. You know, it's just wonderful. Everybody's, you know, feeling well and they swim once a week and uh, they learn well and sing every day. And it's like a paradise for, for learning. And they do good, you know, good things in reading and math and many other things. But look at their results. They are just, just like a horrible. And, and so it doesn't make any sense. You only understand these results. And maybe the same thing with Australia. If you look at, you know, what is, what is happening when these tests are taken? And the Iceland, we don't have time to go into this story, but it's a, it's a fairly interesting story that if you, if, when we take the incentives away from kids to take it seriously, put their best effort, as they do in many other countries in, you know, near here, 
uh, we get a completely different results. So my, my kind of a conclusion regarding Australia is that, that probably we are seeing more uh, kind of a uh, kind of unexplained variance in these results right now than we have seen ever before, which means that we can we can kind of conclude less and less uh, about anything about the performance, particularly the the, the students perform fifteen years uh, old students performance here in Australia than we have been able to do before. So, you know, 10 years ago, I, I used to have a different view on, on PISA in this, this way because there were much less these types of behaviors in the countries. But now it's becoming more and more kind of a gaming in some countries where they want to get the results uh, up and high. And then something that we see here in Australia, we see it in Finland and Sweden and, and Norway, many other countries. It's, it's the same thing that the kids when they, when, they, when they are selected to take the piece and they, they say, what is it for me? So why should, I, why should I care about this thing? And that's why, that's why I think the, the differences that we see now between countries uh, are much harder to kind of judge just by looking at the, the PISA scores or average PISA scores now compared to uh, 15 years ago. What about though Australia's comparison to its own performance in previous um, PISA tests? What could you explain the difference with that? The why the the results are going down. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think you know this is this is one of those things. That it's it's extremely difficult uh, to explain that there are there are number of number of reasons there. But you know, the interesting thing that I uh, I often ask when when I look at the the, the last two cycles of PISA results, uh, 2018 2015, is that there has been a similar trend across the OECD. Almost all. All the OECD countries have gone down. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the OECD countries have been spending, during the last 10 years, 15% more has been spent on education. But overall, the results are coming down in most of the, not all the countries, but most of the countries, significantly down. That what's happening there, it cannot be just, we cannot explain those things by looking at some, only some particular things about teachers or where they teach or some other things. There has to be something that is kind of a, affecting all these young people in a kind of a similar ways in different parts of the world. And you know, one thing that I've been offering um, as a kind of a way to try to understand these declines and performances is the, the, the way young people here in Australia and in Finland and America and Canada and England, you know, most countries, the way they spend their lives with the, the digital gadgets. You know, they sleep less everywhere. Uh, here in Australia and Finland, kids, young people who are at the age of school age, they sleep on average two to three hours less than they should every night. Okay, they move less and they have many, much more uh, mental health issues here in Australia and in Finland, many other countries. So I'm just kind of asking whether, you know, part of these um, inconvenient trends in educational performance uh, measured PISA could be explained by, not by the kind of issues related to school directly, but some of those things that comes with the, the ways that young people live their lives. They're just uh, simply ready to learn. We at the Konski Institute, we just kind of completed the first phase of uh, what we call growing up digital here, um, a kind of a nationwide uh, research. And there's 70% of teachers here in Australia, according to our survey, 70% of teachers from primary to secondary level say that they have uh, children coming to school, not ready to learn much more than five years ago. And, you know, it may be that, you know, a big part of this story 
trying to understand why PISA results in Australia have been declining and in many other countries uh, should be looked at the, you know, mostly with the issues outside of the school gates and inside of the children's lives, how they, what they do and how they live their lives. And this is not a criticism against the, the young people. They just happen to be a very different types of individuals that they were 10 years ago. As Greg obviously knows, uh, you, you see those kids every day in school. So Greg, I mean, what, firstly, what do you, how indicative do you, do you think PISA is? Should we be worried? Um, well, I think we should. Uh, and Parsi might be right. I mean, it is a hypothesis that maybe iPads and things have caused this uh, decline. Um, I think one of the things that we, that, that we need to get clear is the traditional way that people use PISA results is completely wrong. You know, looking at rankings and saying, well, this country's at the top of the ranks and this one's five places below, so we need to look at what that country's doing, has led to a lot of um, nonsense um, and lo lots of silly ideas. I mean, if you look at the case of Finland, for instance, Finland peaked in its PISA performance around 2006. Now, that's an assessment of 15-year-olds. So if you really want to see what was going on to affect that performance, you need to look at the late 1990s. But what people typically do is they go and visit Finland now and they look at things that the Finnish um, education system is introducing now. And then as if those kids could time travel back to 2006 and take the assessment, they assume that that's related to um, uh, the, the Finnish uh, high performance. And um, of course, it, it, it's not. And policy's already indicated that, you know, some of the misconceptions people have about Finland are quite extreme. I think they project um, their own views onto Finland. But Parsi's talked about the quite very, very rigorous end of high school exams that uh, are held there. But I think your question, Jordan, was very perceptive on, on the decline. And I think when you're looking at a country and you compare that country with its past performance, okay, it could be that uh, iPads and, and things have, have been the cause of this, this significant decline. But it could be that there's something going on in the education system. And I, I can't do much about kids' um, interactions with technology outside school, but I'm very, very interested in what we can do in schools um, to uh, look at um, ad addressing this decline. And I think um, that's one of the things that we need, we need to focus on um, because we know that there are strategies that um, are, 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 are associated with better performance and we're not necessarily using those all the time. The other thing that comes out of PISA, which is quite interesting, is if they, they survey students um, and they ask them about the school climate and uh, compared to the OECD average, uh, students in Australian schools uh, report that they experience more bullying and they report a lower, um, what's something called index of disciplinary climate in their classrooms. So I think PISA is not just necessarily about these headline results. It's also about um, the other wealth of information that comes with it um, as well. And I think when you put that all together, it's certainly something that we should be concerned about and looking to, to, to see if we can learn some lessons from. Yeah. Jordan, can I, can I just add, add one, yeah, yeah. one thing into this conversation, because I think that this is important. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing we know from research on, um, you know, how effective uh, schools or teachers actually are when it comes to students' test results like NAPLAN or PISA or some others, it's, it's a very commonly held understanding that about 60% of the variation of students' test scores in PISA or NAPLAN or any other exam are explained by factors outside of the school gate. 
so it's a hugely important thing so so that's why that's why you know about 10% of the variation is a, is a teacher variance and another 10% is you know all the other school uh, in school factors like leadership and curriculum and many other things so you know if, if we take this research seriously that has been done and confirmed over and over again during the last 50 years or more 55 years since the Coleman report in 1966 then of course uh, Craig, you're right that there, there must be there may be some some kind of in-school educational things that have changed that are kind of a causing causing the the incon inconvenient trends here and in other countries but you know just taking taking this fact that you know most of the things that actually have an effect on students performance in the school tests are out, out of school factors either related to the students themselves or in most cases uh, in the families and communities where they live in and that's that's why that this indication would be kind of a, at, at least it advising me to to uh, take equally kind of a close look at some of these things that may affect young people's readiness to learn and uh, perform in the school that are outside of the school gate than those that are related to teachers or programs that schools are doing. That, that's absolutely right, uh, but, but Parsi's talking about the variance in outcomes. And that would be true that schools would have a, a small effect on the variance in outcomes if all schools were pretty much equally affected. If you had a, a homogeneous system where the, the, the schools in the system had the same sort of effect. We know schools have an effect because we've, uh, there's all sorts of ways. We, you, people have posited that uh, gradual increases in IQ over time may be caused by schools. So we know schools have a huge effect on what kids know. But if that effect is pretty much the same across schools, then we won't see much variance in results as caused by that. But if you take, for instance, the case of Michaela Community School in London, so 41% uh, of the students there are eligible for free school meals compared to the um, rate in England, the average of 28%. So it's serving quite a disadvantaged background. Um, and yet in the uh, first, uh, their very first, it's a free school, it was opened in 2014, their very first set of GCSE results on the main measure, which is a measure of progress, not just raw achievement, uh, they uh, came, I think it's fifth in the whole country. So, an so just because on average these things don't necessarily um, add up to much, you know, the, the, the swings and roundabouts mean that the effect is this. It doesn't mean that we can't learn from more effective uh, systems and more effective practices, because if we brought those into our system, we might see a major positive effect overall. Yeah, they're absolutely right. I agree with that. Yeah, go ahead. I was just, Greg, you mentioned strategies that you, like, you would suggest to use uh, because of the piece of situation strategies to improve the system. What, what would they be? Well, um, I could go into quite a lot of detail here, so I'll try and be concise. We know we've got a lot of evidence from teacher effectiveness research, so looking at what teachers do in the classroom and correlating that to outcomes. And then that's been replicated in randomised control trials, experimental studies in the lab that explicit uh, teaching is, is very effective. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this, which I can go into if, if you want, but I'll just outline the key things at the moment. I also think that um, having a systematic approach to managing student behavior is extremely important, um, particularly for kids who suffer from the most uh, disadvantage. Um, and I also think, um, again, for reasons which I can expand upon, that a, a knowledge-rich curriculum where you're building really robust subject knowledge in students um, 
which we don't really have at the moment in Australia. Uh, we have an Australian curriculum, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterise it as knowledge rich. Um, I think those, those three things certainly come together in the example of Michaela School that I've used, but, but, that's, but it, Michaela School isn't the evidence. The evidence draws from um, a large body of wider research. So I'm going to pick up a couple of those things uh, you mentioned. Discipline is one of them. So some of the PISA results seem to suggest that some students think uh, well, the students think Australia has a has less discipline than some other countries. Parsi, would you agree with that? Or you've got fresh eyes. You come from. You've travelled to the world. What do you think? What, what do you mean by discipline? Like a classroom, school behaviour? The, 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 there is less behaviour management. The, the students think that uh, there's more disruption, for example, in their classrooms than students in other countries think. This is stuff that's come out of PISA and TALUS in the past. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I know one school that is our children's school that is a very nice, very good school in that respect. But, you know, what, what Craig was saying earlier, I, I would like to add here that, and, and this is un, very unfortunate, I, it makes me sad every time I, I say this, is that I've, I've, I, I never thought that in, in a nice country like Australia, where people are, you know, this no worries mentality and uh, the, some of the nicest people in the world, that there's so much that the bullying is so common in schools. And not, I'm not only talking about the bullying, kind of a misbehavior of uh, young people, like a kids, a kids uh, treating one another badly. But I've been kind of uh, shocked by the, the, the uh, decree of bullying that come, is addressed to uh, particularly school principals here in Australia. And there was this, uh, uh, Jordan, you probably, I think you re even reported this uh, about a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, I think it was here in New South Wales, the, um, the, the survey that found that one third, I think it's one third of uh, school principals said that during the last 12 months that they have been uh, either, either a, a target of physical bullying or psychological uh, threats. One third of the principals. And it's a, it's a very common, you know, every school I go to, and I talk about this thing, that it comes somehow on board. That it's this, this culture in the schools is, um, um, you know, and it, 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 it's, it's somehow kind of a, this <laughs> bullying seems to be a kind of a part of the culture. People don't like it, but it's somehow silently accepted in, in many places. And if, the, if, if I'm right with this, and I may be wrong, but you know, if this is right, this, this is the kind of way the schools work, then of course it directly influences the discipline uh, of, the, of the kids. But uh, as I said, I haven't seen these things to the same extent in the school where our children go to, except that there are some say that there are some kind of apparent behavior sometimes that is very hard to understand how educated and adult people behave in front of the school principal and teachers in the way they do. Uh, you know, this is something that I, I never ever saw in, in the Finnish schools or even in the United States where I lived for many years. So, so I, I think that this is, this is something something that we need to think harder, um, you know, what, what to do with that. And, you know, regardless what the reasons are why why we have so much of, um, you, you know, children experiencing bullying and particularly principals and teachers, but somehow we have to fix this problem, I think. Greg, Greg what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I, I basically agree. Um, I think one of the problems that we have is the way that we characterise the discussion. If you, if you read about behaviour in schools, um, mostly, most of the time people are talking about punishment 
um, negative consequences for behavior. And, and, and then you get two camps formed. One camp have a very romantic view of, of childhood and they say they all behavior, all misbehavior that a student uh, exhibits is, a, is an attempt to communicate something. And what the teachers really need to do is they really need to figure out what this behavior is communicating, better meet the student's needs. And we shouldn't have this punitive system where, where kids get, get um, negative consequences for the behavior. And then you have traditionists that say, yeah, but if you out in the real world, if you drive too fast or you punch someone in the face or you turn up to a job interview looking like a sack of potatoes, there will be negative consequences for that. And the negative consequences in schools are, are far more milder than the ones you'd find in the real world so we need to prepare kids for that and, and the, the, the traditionists have got a point there obviously we do need to prepare kids for the real world but what both sides of that discussion miss is the wealth of information we have on how you can improve student behavior classroom climate without really uh, focusing on negative consequences so for a start teach all kids to read it's absolutely soulless and depressing thought to imagine going to school every day, academic, which is academic learning, which requires a medium of reading, um, and you can't read. Well, I don't know about you, but I would probably mess about a bit in that situation. Um, you've got to teach kids the behaviours you want, particularly kids from, um, uh, from uh, homes where there aren't that many boundaries. Um, they need to know what it is that these middle class teachers are expecting them to do. You can't um, punish them for doing something that they didn't know they were supposed to do or that was, they didn't know was wrong. You can design out um, uh, behaviours by using routines. You can use uh, seating plans. You can, the kids know that when they come into the classroom, they pick up their mini whiteboards, they do a question that's on them. All that sort of stuff you can put in place. You can teach teachers strategies uh, for dealing with behaviour. Uh, positive reinforcement, reinforcing the kids that are doing the right thing. Uh, if a kid's misbehaving, sorry, I'm, if a kid's misbehaving, you can walk towards them and then nine times out of ten they'll stop. You don't need to admonish them. You can do all of those things before you get anywhere near a negative consequence. Yes, they need to be there. But what we're not talking about is all the other stuff that goes into what I would call a systematic approach to behaviour management. And I think that's what we're missing. Greg, the other point you made earlier was curriculum. So there's a curriculum review in New South Wales and a federal curriculum review as well. Um, and both are decluttering the curriculum. In New South Wales, the idea is that the, the theory is that there is too much content and it's not allowing mastery. Parsi, what do you think of the New South Wales curriculum review and some of the things that it suggested, particularly this untimed syllabus um, recommendation? Yeah, it's a good good question. And it's, it's again one of those questions that I, I probably don't know in enough to be able to say anything kind of a fun, fundamental uh, about that. But um, I, I think the the problem is real and serious. I think the the schools have far too many things now on their plate to do that comes from some one way or the other from the from the curriculum. And I, I think that this unscheduled kind of a more flexibility for schools to decide how to organize the work might be a good, a good thing. I don't know how much it will actually solve the, um, solve the problem, but you know, for me, um, I haven't, I, I haven't, I must admit that I haven't read the review with the eye that would kind of allow me to say anything, any, any details, but it seems to me a kind of a, kind of a document that has a little bit of something for everyone. That it's a 
it includes a lot of lot of uh, ideas that are kind of easy to easy to support and 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 stay with but you know the question i have about these types of uh, reforms here and everywhere else particularly curriculum things that we are if i understand correctly that the idea is that this this new curriculum here in new south wales would be fully in, implemented by 2030 that is 10 years from now um, I, I guess that by then the world has changed so much that you, you know even 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 with the kind of ideal ideal choice of content and syllabi and methods and structure that the conclusion probably will be that this it's outdated already if if the idea is to run it like this so my my way of thinking about these curriculum things is it's not so, so much about what is the content and uh, you know how do we call the subjects and and how is it organized but more about you know how do we how do we have a could we have a system that would be flexible enough and and you know based on you know trusting teachers professional judgment and experience in deciding a little bit more about what is relevant and important for kids to know um, so that it wouldn't take another reform um, somewhere near the 2030 to you know tell teachers what to what to teach but as i said i see i see some good things there but you know these big questions of you know how how relevant this will be when it's fully implemented is i think a big question greg you've been critical of decluttering is there a balance though between the amount of content and the sort of level of mastery that you can achieve in a with a curriculum Yes, there is. And, and, and it depends on what you mean by decluttering. And I, I've, I've read the, the New South Wales Review, and I'm a little bit concerned about where they're going with some of it. Um, first of all, I just say I'm not convinced that the curriculum is going to go out of date in the next five or 10 years. I think basic historical facts, spellings, rules of grammar and all of that are pretty stable and don't change on that sort of timescale. Um, what I would say, and, and very briefly, um, most reading researchers now would use, a, well, not many reading researchers would use a simplified model of reading, which says that, um, and this, you'll see where this is going in a sec, reading is a product of decoding, so you can lift the squiggles off the page and turn it into words, so say the words democratic, and then comprehension, so you understand what that word democratic means. Um, and it's not just about having a good vocabulary. Imagine I gave your typical Australian a passage to read about a baseball match. They'd read the passage, they probably could understand what all the words meant, but unless they were familiar with baseball, they wouldn't really be able to understand the passage. And so when we talk about what, what politicians like to do, they like to say, we're going to declutter the curriculum, we're going to strip it all back, primary curriculum, we're going to strip it all back to just numeracy and literacy, and we're going to get that right first. And it seems very seductive. Numeracy, to a certain extent, you can do that, but literacy depends on this knowledge of the world. That's the, the two components. One is decoding, and the other is all the knowledge you bring to the text that you're reading. So if you strip out, and uh, hopefully Parsi would agree with me on this, if you strip out history, um, geography, science, the arts, if you strip that all away, you end up focusing on mechanical literacy activities set in random contexts that do nothing to build this broad background knowledge that students need in order to become um, good readers, good comprehenders, and able to tackle academic subjects in the future. So if you're going to get rid of something like the general capabilities, like critical 
critical thinking. Uh, well, critical thinking is not a general capability. The Daniel Willingham, the professor of cognitive science in uh, Virginia, is, uh, he explains it depends. You can teach kids to think critically in science, or, but that won't necessarily help them think critically in history. Um, small children can think critically about something they know a lot about, and trained scientists can fail to think critically about something that they don't know much about. So um, if we were going to strip that away, I'm all in favour of it. But if you're going to start jettisoning uh, important subject knowledge, that is actually going to help kids be better readers, then I think that's a problem. Um, we have an interesting um, point from uh, the audience. Linda McNeil asks, uh, she makes the point that many parents have become engaged with their children's education over this remote learning period. So how can we harness this when things go back to normal? How can we keep those parents engaged in what their kids are learning the way they are now? Gregor Parsi? Well, again, I don't entirely know because we're building this plane in the air and, we're, and, uh, and as I said, this package that my school is using has been evolving as we've been using. But I, I certainly think that the, the software tools that we've, we've reached for during this crisis um, have lots to offer and we probably haven't explored the full potential yet but certainly lots to offer in terms of keeping parents more engaged and involved in their kids education. Parsi what do you think? Have, have you seen parents sort of responding to this? <laughs> yeah I think uh, you know one, one thing I, I experienced myself uh, here having, having this um, primary school aged uh, boy with us for almost two months that it's, uh, and, and I say this as a former teacher, that it's uh, much easier to teach other parents' children than your own. And uh, I, I think that, you know, if, you know, if parents would, if parents would understand really that, you know, teaching children is, it's not easy. It's actually, it's very hard. Um, and, you know, just having a one child, teaching one child is difficult, but then having a 30 kids in a class who are very different and they're interested in different things, um, it's even, even harder that, um, you, you know, if, if the outcome of this would be that, yes, it's important that parents continue to be engaged and interested in, in, in their children's education, but that they would... So a little bit more appreciation that they do now, and many many parents do. But I, I think in general, that what the what the teachers are doing in a school is a, is a very complicated thing, and that the best thing that they probably can do is to trust their uh, expertise and experience and and professional wisdom in deciding what is the best thing to do in each and every every class and, and, and every day, that would be a big thing. I, again, I think I, I've, I've seen too many, I've been in a too many meetings and occasions here where, where I get the kind of an impression, it may be wrong, but that's, that's, that's what it is, that parents kind of, a, some parents kind of a think that they know better than the school how to, you know, how to teach the kids and what is the, what is the best thing to do there. And, you know, if we, if we get this type of kind of a, a little bit, kind of a mind, sh mind shift afterwards uh, in, in this co important cooperation and, and engagement that parents have in their kids' learning, that would be great. And I think it, it would benefit everyone. It would be good for the schools and it would be good for the kids themselves. And I think that it would be great for the parents uh, as well. 
Now, I have a question from my um, journalism colleague, uh, Rebecca, at The Australian. How do we ensure a high-performing education system into the future when there seems to be a high degree of resistance to seemingly well-intentioned initiatives such as improving ITE, raising teaching standards, the phonics check? Even the term evidence-based practice seemed to attract some disdain in some quarters. Parsi, what do you think? I, I don't know. You know, this country is, is run by so different kind of ideas, uh, especially education than where I come from. Uh, that, that, you know, the, the, the first thing is here that, that I've learned, it took me a long time actually to understand that it's, it's not the profession that is running, running the kind of a direction of education. Uh, pro- by profession, I mean teachers and, and principals in the system, but it's, a, you know, everybody else, but not them. And then I, I think the, you know, making any these significant changes is very hard if you, if you kind of exclude the profession pretty much away from the uh, from the table and then it's about you know it's about the everybody else including parents and and politicians and others and you know politicians do hear what the parents ask them to do right or did did i miss a meeting but that's that's what i've learned here and and you know if if this is a logic then i think it's it's a very it gets very hard to make these significant changes that people are asking the either it's a, whether it's about teacher education or or, or anything else. I think what I would miss here and, and I kind of a, uh, expect to happen uh, is the kind of a stronger and clearer voice of the profession, uh, both leadership and, and teachers. And I'm not talking about teacher unions, you know, they have a, they have a different role, but, but leadership in a way that the, the profession would be also um, included in these conversations about what is what is needed and how to make these uh, things happen you know my concern this conversation uh, we, we have spoken probably less about what you, you know you know whether education system needs a transformation or reimagining here in Australia I think it's it's easy to say kind of a, make a list of these things that we need to we would like to change and you you mentioned some of them uh, Jordan but it's it's much more complicated thing is to figure out how that change happens and this is the, you know, this is where we're going to be in the end is that we have a lot of things that people want to change and they kind of hope that this is, this is going to lead to completely new thing. But unless we think about how this change happened, how do we change these things? Uh, it's going to be very hard. We know now how to change and Craig, you spoke about that earlier, that we know, we know how to change one school or handful of school or cluster of schools to, to perform, you know, do different things, but nobody knows how to change the whole system. And that's a kind of a, we, here in Australia, we have a number of kind of systems within the system that makes it very difficult and hard. So I think, I, I think the, the conversations like this may help, but we need a different type of, different type of mindset again about the change, not so much about the, what the schools should look like, but how this change, how do we change these things? Great. Can you answer Rebecca's question, but also touch on the point of whether you know teachers do have a strong enough influence on policy? Is their voice being heard, or is their voice too fractured? Absolutely not. There was a, a, a festival in Sydney, um, I think it was last year, where they had a big thing panel on education. There wasn't a single teacher on the panel, um, where the t- where the profession that gets um, told what to do by others um, 
and part of the some of the people that are telling us what to do are in universities uh, we have you know you can go to university and train to be a teacher and you can be lectured in uh, classroom in, in managing classroom behavior by someone who's never been a teacher and never done it themselves so uh, I, I think you'd never have that in the law you'd never have that in medicine and I think it is a big problem for us and I, I agree with Parsi on that that we need a much better voice um, that explains teachers are very practical they, they want to know how this is good how, how am I going to do this with 25 kids in front of me they haven't got time for uh, ideological flights of fancy but most of our researchers in the university that's what they're producing they're not producing practical guides and they're also training our um, new teachers so invariably I haven't done a survey and people I say well you haven't been to every IT um, ITE institution so you don't know but um, it's fairly clear you know all the graduate teachers I meet they, they're told that um, if they plan engaging enough lessons that the kids will behave and that um, uh, explicit teaching is really bad and authoritarian and even though there's a lot of good evidence for it so th that's the problem and I think central and I think Paz has absolutely nailed it it's because it lacks the voice of teachers and one last thing and I know um, I've, I've, I've gone on a bit here but uh, in New South Wales for instance the teachers tell me the public school teachers tell me that they basically are not allowed to comment on education because of uh, their social media policy, um, which prevents them from talking about education. So if that's the case, you know, how can we get, have an informed debate in the Australian media if teachers are effectively not allowed to comment? No, that is true. They're not allowed to comment in the New South Wales public system, but they're welcome to contact me anyway. Um, final thoughts, gentlemen, Parsi. No, I think it's a, this is actually an excellent, excellent way to end the conversation. And uh, thank you, thank you, Craig and and Jordan for for a lovely, lively, lively conversation. But you know, Colin, just the one one note about this last thing that we said. I've been, you know, I've been teaching uh, teaching students in different universities in the U.S. and and Finland and other places. And one of, one of my mission has always been to try to help them to have their voice by teaching them and helping them to write op-eds and blogs and, and other things. And I, I saw this very clearly here in our doctoral program with the, with the very experienced teachers and principals um, in our university, that they were very keen to learn how to write, how to write a kind of a powerful op-ed where they could voice their kind of a professional view on, on certain things. But then everything plucked to the fact that they said that we can, we can, we, we are not allowed to publish this. And I, you know, this happened to me like a year and a half ago. I had been here like three months. I just couldn't believe that. I said, how is it possible that you've been a principal, a teacher for 20 years and principal for, for another 10 years and you cannot, you, cannot, you cannot publicly write about things that you think you, you have an opinion. So I think, you know, one thing, um, one thing that could help us forward is to, to make, make sure that we have we have a truly a profession here that can can be part of the uh, part of the conversation building the the post pandemic uh, education system here in new south wales and in australia i think we all would be much better off greg final thoughts final thoughts everything i've said uh, tonight i could be wrong about and uh, we need to we need to be able to test that we need to be able to debate we mean, need to be able to experiment we need to be able to create schools that run things slightly differently like michaela in london we need mechanisms for that um, because we need we, we need to be able to test out these ideas um, if and we need to be able to disagree and that that's the key thing that we're missing at the moment. Okay, thank you both so much, Parsi and Greg, and thank you to the CIS for having us. And I'm going to throw back to Glenn. 
Thanks, Jordan. What a great discussion. And also a big thanks to Parsi and Greg. I hope you enjoyed it as well at home. Now, for decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice, working to deliver evidence-based educational policy and resources. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel and click the notification bell. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you to advance our cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved. Thank you and bye for now.